welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the creative people of Austin, Texas. My intention always is to have conversations that are meaningful, inspiring, and in-depth with the goal of making a connection first with the person I'm interviewing, hopefully adding value to their life and career, and then sharing that content with the local community and potentially anyone in the world. Karen Hawkins created the Pink Bow Project to open up more conversations about sexual abuse, help educate people about it, create an opportunity for healing, and bear witness to those who are the victims of that abuse. She decided to use her story, creative energy, and voice along with those of other women in a potentially influential way to help bring this issue out of the shadows. It was inspiring to see other women be vulnerable and come forward, and she wanted to be a part of the national discourse, add to the collective empowerment of the movement, and keep it going forward. What a moving and powerful conversation this was for me. The first half of the interview, we speak about her art career and life, and the second half, we dig into the details of the Pink Bow Project. If you find this interview valuable, please share it and further Karen's mission to help educate and hopefully try to heal and prevent this all-too-common abuse perpetrated upon the women of the world. As she says in the interview, we can no longer accept the status quo. Here is Karen. Okay, Karen, thanks for being on my podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so happy that you came out. The main reason we're here is because you have an exhibit at Gallery Shoal Creek right now called the Pink Bow Project. That's right. And I definitely want to talk about that, but... For listeners who maybe don't know about you as an artist, maybe you could give kind of a brief introduction to who you are. <laughs> okay. Uh, as an artist, well, I, um, I I started my career pretty late. I was in my 40s when I began really working. Yeah. And it came honestly out of a necessity to create, to keep myself from being insane. Oh, I mean, wow. Really? That's <laughs> what it came out of. It was, um, and I've always, I've always had that part of me. Mm. Um, but as I raised a family and as my youngest daughter was approaching her sophomore year of high school, I realized that if I didn't do something to fulfill this part of my life, I was just going to be a mess by the time my kids were all gone. And so I went back to UT. I went back to school. Oh, wow. And I was immediately pulled directly into the sculpture program. It just was, mm. I kind of knew that would be my path because it was just immediately what I was more drawn to as an art collector. Yeah. If you look at my oh, house, right. most of what I have is very three-dimensional pieces. Mm-hmm. So. And I like to make things. And so that's yeah. kind of how I ended up choosing that direction. I feel like I can totally relate to you. And I, I feel like for myself, I don't know if you've ever done the artist way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I feel like kind of a shadow artist in yeah. a way. Maybe yeah. you felt like that for many years. It's uh-huh. like you surround yourself with art and artists, but mm-hmm. you're not actually <clears throat> getting the fulfillment of doing it yourself. Right. So do you think that that strong desire to create, do you think you coped with that by raising your children? Is that how, was that the outlet? Or I mean, what outlet did you have to kind of like? Well, I had a lot of really self-destructive outlets that were not, um, and and they came out in particularly as I was going through really big transitions in oh, my life. Okay. So um, I just had this realization as I was transitioning through this really 
terribly abusive relationship oh. and going through a divorce and finding my way on my own, that this piece had to be expressed differently. It was really, it, it kept hmm. me very anxious. And it really was about, you know, there was this creative side of me that just wasn't being expressed. Hmm. And so it comes out very negatively when you don't do that. Yeah. I had a realization that that really... Um, as I found a little bit more direction creatively, it satisfied my soul. I found a much more peaceful existence just day to day. And also uh, a lot of my anxiety and some of the depression that I was experiencing at the time, it all sort of just dissipated through me being creative. And I found that it was really just a necessity for me. It was something I had to do. And then it began to just bring me incredible joy. And as I continued working and learning, the hardest thing that I ever had to do was really just say the words, I'm an artist. That was something that took me years to gather enough confidence to even be able to say that. It makes me wonder why, why a person who's inclined towards art or creativity, it's like this much healthier path creating beautiful objects or being out in the world connecting with people through art. Like, I wonder why it would take so many years of choosing these other coping strategies, these negative, destructive things, like years. Yes, years, decades. Like, why is that (laughs) easier in some way of a choice, you know? You know, it just never felt like an option to me, honestly. Mm. I, uh, I didn't even consider it as an option until I was, you know, well into my, my 30s and early 40s before yeah. it occurred to me that what I was missing was my ability to creatively express myself. Did that happen in a moment or was it someone, um, something external? That I think it was probably a series of things. Mm-hmm. It was really, um, I went through this, this program where I, I um, was doing some very intensive therapy at the okay. time. It started honestly with me just writing, writing and writing and writing. Mm. And I, you know, that started to satisfy some part of my uh, sort of dissatisfaction that I was having mm-hmm. just in general in my being. But as I started using my hands and making, mm. uh, it was just much more satisfying to me. And so then, you know, it was, okay, I'm going to learn as much as I can and and go back and really make this happen and, and do this for me. Yeah. So here I am now. <laughs> I think selfishly, I'm really curious about this transition because I feel like I'm in that exact spot right mm-hmm. now. And I feel, I think from doing so many interviews being inspired by so many artists. I also have a strong desire welling up in me to create something, to make something. Mm -hmm. Like, what was that moment like? I mean, did it not happen until you actually started your classes or did you start doing something at home? Was there like a moment where you're like, just screw it. I'm just going to like make something right now. I mean, I, you know, I was making things all along, even in my early, all through my teenage years into my twenties, I was making things. I was, I was incredibly domestic. Actually, I raised a family and I did the things that I, I, I guess in many ways, a very old fashioned sort of Southern girl, uh, would do. I was a young mother, a young wife. I I cooked, I baked, I sewed clothes, I made, you know, yeah. I made things for my right. home. But All that, very creative. Yes, very creative. But, you know, that still didn't satisfy, mm-hmm. you know, the part of me that, that I needed it to. And, you know, I, as I grew and matured and developed and, and 
relationships ended and pathways appeared for me to figure out who I was as a as a woman, you know, everything changed. And so I began sort of making in a more more powerful way, I suppose mm. I should say. And that process has just continued to move forward. And just recently, in the last year and a half, I found myself kind of going through this really big transition mm. again, where I'm, I'm bored with my work, and I'm trying to figure out what am I doing? Why am I doing this? What is my <laughs> purpose? How do I fit in this crazy world that I find myself in right now? dealing with a lot of sort of just uh, heartbreak over mm. so much of what's happening in the U.S. right now and tried to figure out how I manage it. And it, it's been coming up again in anxiety and in, mm. you know, depression. And and so I, I just t- went back to the sketchbook and just poured into it, just like mm. doodling ridiculous little things, little marks just to ease my anxiety. Yeah. And like journaling yeah, before. Like journaling before, but now it's just simple marks that I'm making that don't mean anything at all, but they're each time I do it, it's like releasing some anxiety that I have. And I did that for weeks and weeks where I was doing nothing but that. And as I was doing that, I started it started to kind of as it eased my anxiety, it also allowed space for me to find a creative way of dealing with how enraged I've been. Mm. And, you know, that's how the Pink Bow Project was born out of that. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk about the Bow Project, obviously. But I'm just wondering if we could first just go back to the beginning. Like, where did you start out your life and what was your upbringing like? Was there any art or creativity or encouragement of that involved? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I I was actually born in Orange County, California. And we left there when I was a year old. And uh, at the time, my father was working for NASA. And so we moved to Houston. And we were in Houston for just... I think about two years and then came to Austin. So I've been in Austin since I was about three. Oh, wow. Um, I grew up on the east side in northeast Austin in a a neighborhood called University Hills. Mm -hmm. Was there most of my, well, throughout my early childhood and into probably middle school when we left there. My father was a plumber. Hmm. He, He definitely had a huge influence on my desire to make things with my hands because I remember as a child going with him at times when he would be going to a a, a job and like for instance he would be going to do a rough in at a commercial site or at a residential site I was just absolutely fascinated by the way that he you know pipe fitting putting things together and making them work in a way that um I don't know it, it just fascinated me and so I always wanted to make things, you know, so that he was definitely a big influence on, on that and the way that I am um, kind of am able to see things in my brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then um, I, I married very young, right out of high school mm-hmm. and had uh, a family right away and worked my way through college here and there as I was raising children. Mm. And I would take, you know, a few hours a semester take off a semester and go back and take, you know, three or six more hours. And uh, it ended up taking me a very long time to finish school, but I did it with my children. So, (laughs) um, and that's something that my oldest daughter in particular, who has her PhD, um, she has memories of me sitting down at the dinner table after 
after dinner and after I've gotten them bathed and getting them in bed. And, and that's when I would start my work, you know, and start uh, studying. And um, Do you feel proud of all the work you did to raise I your family? Am, I am very proud of it. I really am. I, am. I came from a working class family, and I was the first one to go to college in my family. Mm. And I, I'm very proud of that, you know, out of all of my siblings. And I've raised a family where all of them went to college, which mm-hmm. I'm also deeply proud of. Um, it was something, you know, when I did finally graduate from the University of Texas, I had my children there by my side. Oh. And um, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I bet. What did you study? I studied, well, originally I studied accounting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My, uh, I have a, a brain that just works in really odd ways. It, accounting came very easy to me. Mm. It was something that um, made sense. I did really well at it. I made good grades and I hated it. Um, so when I went back to school after my, um, after my youngest was a sophomore, I went directly into the, the art department. Oh, I, okay. I, I studied art history for just a, maybe two semesters and loved it, but it wasn't satisfying my need to create. And so I, um, transferred into this, you know, studio art and, mm-hmm. um, had some just fantastic, um, professors there and one who mentored me who I'm very close to and she's just fantastic and mm. yeah, and had a huge effect on me. So did you struggle to learn art or did it come naturally no, to you? It came, it came naturally. It, I'd studied, you know, my husband and I have traveled all over the world and one of our favorite things is to visit museums and galleries. So I've studied art. Yeah, I have purposely taught myself um, how to see art and how to ah. critique art and how to experience art, you know, and, and I had been in that place before I started uh, in the art department at UT. And oh, okay. so, so I kind of was coming at it from a viewpoint of a, a, a novice, uh, self-educated <laughs> <laughs> art lover. Who, yeah, that's a good place who, to start, um, I'd say. Who just wanted to soak up more information and wanted to learn about materials and about techniques. And so that's why I was there. And this mentor that you had, what did she give you or say to you or do for you? Margo Sawyer. She's just fantastic. So um, she and I just hit it off. I, you know, I was older by the time I, I went back to school and um, it was really odd at first being a, a 40 year old, Actually, I was older than 40, <laughs> 40-ish <laughs> a woman in, yeah. a, in the art department with a bunch of 18-year-old students who yeah. were just, I mean, but it was such an, a wonderful experience. Some of the younger females in particular were very drawn to me because they had just left home and uh, missed their parents, missed oh, their yeah. mom. And so I, I connected really with a lot <laughs> of those students there. I was kind of like the, you know, the mom of the class. But um, Margot and I, we just hit it off. I got her and she got me. And she um, is is a dear friend. And I enjoyed her viewpoint uh, in the way that she um, taught me about, you know, looking at sculpture and looking at installations and and, um, the exposure to new artists that I had not thought to, you know, to, to examine before. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she's been a, a big supporter too, which has been really great. 
I'm wondering if there's anything you could share quickly about looking at art or critiquing art or understanding art. I mean, I feel I feel like a lot of people are intimidated by that subject. By looking at art, well, trying to understand uh, yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, it's like kind of that cliche, like, oh, I don't, I don't understand art. I don't know what it means. So they'd feel like they can't relate to it. Right. More. You know, it's funny. There's so many different, uh, obviously different forms of art. So, you know, sitting down in front of a painting and examining that, that's something that I used to do quite a bit. I would sit and just stare at, um, you know, looking at the details of, of why an artist chose not just the materials that they chose, but the brushstrokes that they chose or what the, the subject matter is. Yeah. And there's so many tiny details when you're examining a, a painting that lead you to little clues that the artist could provide to kind of direct you as to what their meaning is. Right. And sculpture, especially contemporary works, are a little more difficult, especially conceptual works. You have to really, it forces you to really think. I remember, you know, the first time I I went to a, a, um, gosh, I don't know how old I was. I was probably a teenager, Mm -hmm. went to a a contemporary art museum and I was trying to understand the art and I I didn't understand. I didn't know why they were making what they were making. And, but it made me so curious, like, how am I supposed to read this? Yeah. You know, it's not like a landscape where I can go and look and there's a tree and a house and okay, like I get that. I understand that, but why can't I understand this? And how do I begin to understand this? How do I learn to understand this? So it was just, you know, a process of, of, for me, I was trying to teach myself, but along the way, as I went back to school, I discovered, you know, much more about viewing art and the openness that you really have to just just experience it and see how you feel about it. Mm. You know, for instance, somebody came through the, um, the installation this past week. I've gotten so many wonderful responses, but there was one person who said to me, I hate it. I hate it. I, I can't stand to be in there. And it was like, you know what? I totally get that too. And that feeling is just as valid as all the other oh, yeah. feelings that people respond to. And I understand why they hate it. It's it's difficult and it's hard to sit there and, and experience it. And some people don't have the ability to take it in and mm-hmm. try to make sense of it and feel good about it. And some people don't want to experience something if it doesn't make them feel good. Or they don't want to try to understand art they don't know how to relate right. to. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. a big one. A lot of people don't want to try to understand art that they don't relate to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when did books become a thing? Like, oh my what's gosh. your history with books? <laughs> <laughs> so my mother was an avid reader. We had books all over the house. She always had a book in her hand. And I loved reading. It was kind of, um, it, it was my way of escaping my childhood. And we had, at the time... Um, in the early 70s in University Hills, there was a bookmobile that, of course, came through our neighborhood weekly. And yeah. it was just my favorite, favorite thing. It would literally stop right on the corner where my, our house was on the corner of these two streets where they intersected. And that's where the bookmobile would stop. And so <laughs> it was just right there outside my door once a week. And I would run out and just go in and check out as many books as they would let me. And I was always pushing it. Can I take more? Can I take more? Oh, wow. um, but I would go out with a handful of books 
and just consume them. You know, I just read and read and I, I read so many books as a teenager. So for me, my love of books started very early, but it also was not just about what's inside of a book. I mm-hmm. also was really in love with the form of a book. I liked that this really ancient sort of structural form has just sustained itself for centuries and yeah. millennia. And and here it is, you know, changed, but still basically the same. And And I'm just fascinated by how different books, how they feel and how they smell and the sizes of books big giant books that weigh 15 pounds when you pick them up and they're filled with these beautiful glossy pages and some teeny little little books that I have a collection of little small books that are probably you know three inches four inches and and they're just these tiny little books some of them are leather bound and they're old and I love the way they feel in my hands and I love to touch the pages when I close my eyes and I touch the pages I like to be oh. able to tell the difference between all the papers that are used you oh, know wow. and and for me as I started working in books that feeling underneath my fingertips really sort of directed hmm. what type of book I would choose for some of my work. It was all about how it felt to me as I folded over a page and creased it. You know, how did that feel under my fingers? Hmm. And um, so my work has been a lot about um, not just the outcome of turning these books, which essentially have become really objects that sit on shelves. Mm-hmm. You know, my my work has been to objectify them even further, but it also is very much for me about the process by which I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, because that process has been, like I said, for me, part of my necessity in easing anxiety and making my brain stop doing what it's doing. Sometimes it's that movement and that repetitive. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you about yeah. that. That is just, it eases me, it settles me. Yeah, and, and it's it's very, very satisfying. Yeah, maybe for someone that's never seen that work, maybe describe what you're talking about, because otherwise... Right. And that is one, <laughs> one thought that I had about the book work. It's just like this hours and hours and hours of repetitive yes. of a process. And I just thought, like, what is she thinking about? What is she processing while mm-hmm. she's making, making, mm-hmm. making? Like a, just a meditative... Right, it is. A, it's, it, I get into a very zen-like state. It is very meditative. And it's just a repetition of movement, you know, over and over and over and over again. And it... Um, so there's several different ways in which I've manipulated books and turned them into objects two ways in particular that you probably have seen more than others. There's one where I take a book essentially and fold the pages, each page of the book in specific ways that creates a a form, you know, of the book. And so a book may have, you know, 500 pages in it, some of them that I choose. And so I'll go through this repetition where one page might have two or three or four or five different folds mm. on on one page. And I'll do that same two or three or four or five folds on the next page. And it's just, so then I've spent, you know, four or five hours doing this repeated motion yeah. that in the end creates this form that I then use in replica. So I, I'll then make, you know, 12 more like that and create 
for instance, the piece at the W Hotel, the totem that's hanging in the lobby, that essentially is 12 book forms where I've used uh, University of Texas yearbooks and turned Mm -hmm. them into this piece of art. They're like cylindrical totems that are tall. A totem is something recognizable by humankind. We know what totems are for. They're in reverence to something. And that's how I feel about books. This is my my homage to the book, you know, to the structure of the book. And then, um, for instance, the jelly rolls, which are these tightly wound little, um, where I've actually cut the books at this point, and there's pages, loose pages that have been dyed um, mm. on on the edges. And then I, I roll them in these tight little scrolls, and they're one page after another after another. So there'll be hundreds of pages, perhaps even, uh, rolled into a tight little roll. And then I'll make, you know, 400 of them for a piece of art. And mm-hmm. so it is this repetitive, meditative process that behind the scenes as a viewer, you don't, I mean, you look at it and you go, oh my gosh, this must have taken hours. This is, you know, so tedious. And it is. But the outcome is not necessarily all of what my work is. It's it's also this entire process that I go through, Mm. that I experience, that is the most satisfying part for me. And does that satisfy what we kind of started out talking about? It keeps me from being crazy. Yeah. And didn't the, the, I'd read that the jelly rolls actually were influenced by your, inspired by your grandmother's yes. quilting, right? So my, my paternal grandmother, I, I remember when I was a child watching her once, and it may have only been once, but it only took this one time that, that mm-hmm. it influenced me, watching her putting together some quilting squares. She was, she was just stacking them on top of each other. And I guess it was for a quilt that she was going to make at some point. And she rolled it up into this tight, roll once she got, I don't know, 50 to 100 of these squares just stacked on top of each other. She rolled it up into this tight roll. And I remember looking at the edges and thinking how beautiful it was, mm. you know, looking at all the different colors swirled in there. And, and so that's, that's where the jelly rolls kind of yeah. came from. Nice. So where do you think the book is going in the digital age? Because I, <laughs> I actually think about like, it's so bizarre that we've come Kind of, I don't know if you'd say full circle with now we have the Amazon bookstores. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think about all that when you think <laughs> about kind of the decommissioning of books? Well, it's sad. It makes me really sad. Um, I still read books, hard copy. I still, and mm-hmm. I, I even, I prefer a hard cover book. I don't even want to read a paperback. Oh, wow. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do read paperbacks if I have to. Yeah, but, okay. <laughs> but I prefer a hardcover book. And it's really funny because my husband only reads digitally. And, and so it's interesting at night when he's, you know, sitting on his Kindle and I've got the light on so I can read an actual book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it makes me sad. But maybe they're not really going away. I no, guess of course you know. they're not. And and that's the thing, you know, that's kind of my push in these books. You know, much of the books that I use, these decommissioned, let's call them books that are no longer useful in libraries because, you know, guess what? All of the information that's inside of those books is up here in the yeah, cloud. You exactly. know, it's online. It's information that's available at your fingertips now. So much easier to access. I had somebody donate a an entire law library to me. So mm. I had tens of thousands of volumes of books. Whoa. I think I actually had two whole li- law libraries in my um, storage building at one point. You know, what else are you going to do with these 
Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I um, know that you probably think about the history of those books too, right? Like where they, oh yeah, that's where a, they started, mm-hmm. who made them, mm-hmm. what their life was like, and yep. sometimes you find things in the books. I like, find tell so me many some great things. Maybe there's some cool something stories. that. Uh, so I went to a um, an estate sale, I think it was, and found a group. It was a collection of encyclopedias, and I think it was Encyclopedia Britannica, and it was probably. I can't remember exactly, but I think it was from the 20s. I might be wrong. It may have been the 30s. But anyway, it was just this this collection of encyclopedias. And I thought it was fascinating in that I bought the whole collection. I brought it home. And I started, as I was unpacking it out of the box, I started to realize that every volume had a ton of loose papers and things inside of it. And I, I started looking at kind of like... What what is all this? Yeah, and there was so the owners of this set they were updating it periodically oh, with wow. information that they had found <laughs> in newspaper clippings. So if something new was happening in the world or something interesting had occurred, they were adding it to their yeah. volumes of encyclopedia with just loose papers. I thought, my God, this is fascinating. Yeah, um, I want to meet these. people. Oh my gosh, it was it was. <laughs> I, I just was blown away by thinking of, you know, updating, you know, these, (laughs) (laughs) these encyclopedias. I know it was, it was fascinating to me. Um, and I ended up taking all of those loose documents and clippings and everything else and making a piece of art out of those. But yeah, that's one of the things that I do. There's some of the work that I've made this one piece in particular called epilogue that I use really old books that are basically falling apart they're, they're like that video we looked at earlier yeah it was a they're, clip from the time machine <laughs> exactly the movie from 1960 yeah. they are near dust some of the books that i get some of them are are have mold growing in them and oh, they're just a mess funny. and the um i salvage them in such a way but the point is that when i look at these a lot of what i what goes through my mind is who touched these whose fingerprints are inside of here you know where were they when they read this? Um, And in many cases, if you, okay, this gets to some of my weirdnesses. Like I smell books. I smell them every time I pick one up, I smell it. And you can smell some of the rooms they've been in. You can tell if somebody was in a library where there was, I can just imagine like somebody smoking a cigar and sitting in this, (laughs) this wood paneled room, reading some of these volumes with his cigar or with his, his (laughs) pipe. And you can smell it in the book, you know, and I'm always fascinated by thinking of how many hands have touched them and um or eyes have and, gone yeah, along the lines yeah. or and did when they read this line did they feel the same way I feel right now did it touch them as much you know and and especially when you go back and look at books where somebody has taken the time to annotate in some way yeah. by underlining it or making a little mark or inscriptions, you know, yeah. really, too. Oh, my gosh. I have powerful. a collection of inscriptions. Like, I always rip out the first page of every oh, book that yeah. I use for my art. So, in particular, if there's an inscription on it, I have all of them saved. And I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds oh. of them. And one of these days, I'll do something great with those. But yeah. there's beautiful inscriptions that I've saved. And, um, yeah, they're they're very meaningful. I obviously... I am very drawn to nostalgia and um, things with a history and a past. And that part of me that's very much a dreamer, I I always go fully down the the cave into imagining 
you know, who they were and where they were and yeah. and how this book came to exchange hands and yeah. Very nice. Well, I'm a huge book lover myself, so yeah. I definitely appreciate everything you're saying. I th- I feel like we should spend the rest of our time talking about the Pink Bow Project because okay. that's why we're here, and I think that's it's really important. I'm guessing the reason you have you're having the exhibit this month is because it's National Child Abuse Prevention Month. Yes, and Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Oh, okay. April is. So it's a combination of those two. It seemed very appropriate to open it now. Yeah. So tell me about the project. So the Pink Boat Project, this really came out of, again, this space where I was really struggling with trying to figure out how I was fitting in the world right now. As a survivor of sexual abuse, I've had a lot of reactions and responses to kind of the national discourse that's happening and been happening for a year and a half, two years. I have felt this collective empowerment of women coming forward and speaking out, girls coming forward and speaking out. I looked at you know, the gymnasts who came forward um, mm, yeah. and, and their struggles to do so, the ways in which they were kept from talking yeah. and and were being denied access to help and to the way that adults had, had really enabled the predator and not helped the victims in this case. And yeah. and between that and, and, I mean, I could go into a political dive right well, now. Yeah. Um, Whatever you need to say. I mean, you know, okay, I'm going to say it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, one of the things that I just was, it was heartbreaking to me, to watch people who I know, and my own family, in fact, knowing my experience and, and watching my country where I grew up, which I'm so proud of to be a part of, seeing how credible allegations of sexual abuse could be um, asserted against someone and they be completely denied by yeah. a, a population. It just, it was heartbreaking to me to watch this going on. And from two ways, it was heartbreaking to me that that people were either saying that the victims couldn't be believed or that even if they were believed that it didn't matter. In both both of those instances, I just wasn't sure how I'm supposed to sit in this. How am I sp- how is this supposed to settle in me? And it didn't settle well. <laughs> yeah. So I found myself really in this place of trying to figure out what to do next. How do I uh how do I take how I'm feeling and figure out how to move forward? in a direction that's not going to just uh, be soul crushing. Yeah. Um, because that's kind of how I have felt for the last year. And as I started really thinking about, you know, honestly watching these these young women using their voice in such a powerful way and so courageously, I, I just thought, you know, I, I have to do that. If they can do it, I can do it. Mm. It really took, you know, I, I am honestly a very introverted and naturally sort of shy person. I think a lot of that is because of my early abuse. It's like mm. I tend to keep people at a distance. That's something yeah. that's comfortable to me. 
part of this whole process has been, okay, I, I need to figure out how to comfortably allow myself or maybe even uncomfortably allow myself to be more vulnerable. Having been raised in this community and knowing many people in this community, you know, socially, there was this realization that many of them, most of them did not know my story. And in fact, my own grown children, I had never told them. Mm. And though I I started dealing with my own sexual abuse when I was in my 20s in therapy, and and I still see the same therapist, and we have, I've spent a lot of time coming to terms with the abuse and dealing with all of the repercussions and and the effects Mm -hmm. of it uh, throughout my life. It never really occurred to me to tell my children yeah. until I started thinking about doing this project. I raised three daughters, and they're all adults. And all of a sudden, you know, last time I turned around and looked, they were young girls, and I would never have told them then. And now here they are raising children of their own, and it's time that they know. And so I had a discussion with them this past summer. You know, it went as you would expect it would be. It was... um very bonding experience mm. and um, and sad and but I think helps them to better understand me as well and a lot of my choices that I made as a as a parent but it felt like it was time and I had to uh, do something where I could add my voice and my creative energy to this really this collective voice that's occurring uh, yeah. nationwide with with women. I just wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to feel that empowering uh, feeling of participating in truly a rising of just no longer accepting the status quo as it relates to sexual harassment and sexual abuse and sexual assault and rape and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the words that we use to describe it. And this is the way that it came out. It came out as the Pink Bow Project. And it was really kind of me looking for a way to talk about childhood sexual abuse from the perspective of a survivor who is an artist and using that in such a way where where people could understand it and and be drawn to it where they would see the beauty in this piece that has a horrifically um, tragic storyline behind it yeah the way that I created the piece was Every single detail has very specific meanings from my perspective as an artist and as a survivor. For instance, I mean, you've walked through the piece. Yeah. The panels, which are this sheer but very sturdy fabric panel, this buckram panel. You can see silhouettes of people as they walk through. You can see them through there, but you can't connect to them. You can't really... You can't. You can see them in the distance, but you just can't get there. And that's that's very much a part of my feeling of how I live in the world. I feel a little bit disconnected from from everyone. Um, not quite able to get all the way to that connection. The frayed edges of the panels. I don't know if you noticed those, but yeah. that has a very specific feeling for me. Again, it, it mimics sort of my desire and love for uh, repetition and mm-hmm. a movement that is repeated, you know, exponentially ad nauseum, you know. So it has that same sort of feeling as some of my previous work, but obviously it's it's very, uh, very different. And the pink bow? The pink bow, it's just such a 
a symbol of a girl's innocence, of a girl's childhood. I wore a pink bow when I was a girl. All of my girl daughters had a pink bow in their hair at some point. It seemed like sort of the the most um, recognizable, attributable symbol to female innocence and, and childhood. When you were raising your daughters, did you have a fear that they might be abused I was in some way? Terrified. Terrified by it. Yeah. Yes. What do you do with that? Oh my terror? gosh. It's it's really terrible. I was afraid to let them have, you know, play dates over at people's houses to spend the night anywhere. I yeah. was just I was terrified. And and I lived it out that way. I mean I I had a very difficult time not expressing that. So we have the panels. Maybe break down the numbers as far as what, how, yeah, so what constitutes Yeah, so in, in the gallery there are 52 panels. And so there's approximately about 52,000 female substantiated cases of sexual abuse against females under the age of 18 annually in the United States. So every year... Child Protection Services and Children's Advocacy Services, they are able to substantiate that number of actual abuse cases. But, you know, that number statistically, when you think about what it takes to get there, there's so many barriers to even mm. be considered a statistic. And let's let's look at those just briefly. Yeah. Um, the first one, of course, is the child has to speak out. And in many, 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 many cases, that doesn't happen. For instance, I did not speak out. I didn't tell anyone until I was in my 20s that I had been sexually abused. My sister, who is also a survivor of sexual abuse at the hands of the same person, mm. she also did not tell anyone until she was in her 20s. Um, we didn't even tell each other. We had no idea that the other one was suffering the same abuse at the same time. And so... Speaking out is just a massive barrier. Um, If a child is able to do that, to tell an adult, that adult has to believe them. That's another big barrier. Mm. A lot of, a lot of people, adults in families in particular have, you know, this is a terrible thing to know, especially and in particularly if it's a family member who's doing it. In many cases that will just stay right there. It won't move further. People don't want to destroy their families. They don't want to, you know, rock the boat. They don't want to, you know, there's a million, a million reasons why people don't tell. And, um, and, you know, um, sorry. (laughs) And so, you know, changing that is something that that needs to happen, you know, and then the next scenario is that once that adult, if they believe them, and they do tell the authorities, the authorities have to find some, some type of evidence or witnesses in order to substantiate this case, you know, so there's a lot of barriers that keep that statistic actually low. I mean, yeah, I mean, it must be very low. You know, you look at 52,000. I mean, when you walk through the gallery space, it seems like so many, but in reality, that number is so much more. It is, it is, you know, there are 42 million adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse living in the United States today. If you think about, you know, one in four females are sexually abused before they're 18, you know, you come to to terms with the fact that that, that actual statistic of substantiated cases is just a minuscule it's a drop in the bucket of what's really happening 
And is it almost always men that are perpetrating the abuse? Um, in most cases, yes. Against females, yes. How does that make you feel about men in general? You like, know, what has your relationship my, been with men throughout your life? It's been really difficult. You know, this has had significant effects on my ability to trust men. And, of course, early on, it what it did was it caused me to choose very abusive males. So mm. my first husband and my second husband I've been married uh, married to my third husband who is incredible but my first and second husband were um, were abusive mm. I look back and it's like of course that's that's who I would pick of course yeah. uh, I hadn't quite done all the work that I needed to do that was my my um, my psyche kind of and you know working out all of the things that needed to be worked out and trying over and over and over again to do it. You know, it's been a a difficult relationship, me and men at first. You know, I I both have sought out powerful men and been very willing to to give over myself to that. But as I got healthier and as my, you know, and I spent more and more time in therapy and really kind of coming to terms with, with all of the fine little details of like what some of these side effects of my abuse, you know, how they had played out in, in my personal choices and in my intimate relationships and in, you know, uh, so many other things I began to really, you know, it was, it was a matter of, of developing self-confidence and self-esteem and, and, uh, discovering my power as a woman that was not related to sex. So it's, it's a really complicated history. Um, and it's just been in the last really, uh, let's say probably 18 years that it all started to, uh, come together in a, in a, um, really healthy and powerful way for me where, where I've, um, am in a very loving relationship with somebody who knows my full history and um he's incredibly supportive you know and he he understands you know we've we've talked about what it means when i'm sound asleep and you roll over in the middle of the night and reach out and touch me why i might jump yeah. you know and why it might terrify me for a second you know like mm-hmm. that can be really shocking to somebody when they experience that the first time yeah. i needed him to understand it and so we've spent a lot of time dealing with that so you did a lot of work in therapy. Yeah. What are some things that maybe come to mind that you learned that might be helpful for other people to hear? Oh, goodness. That would be kind of, not generic, but just right. might speak to a lot of women. You know, I think the the biggest thing that people who have been sexually abused, in particular as children, they carry just incredible shame. The shame that we carry is unbelievable. We are taught to be ashamed of it um, by the perpetrators. We are told that it's our shame to carry, that it's our burden, that it's either our fault or blamed for it. And I, I think that the biggest thing to overcome really has been that. You know, I, I spent much of my life feeling uh, uniquely different from everyone else, not wanting to be seen kind of like hanging out in the corner, not wanting people to look at me and feeling like I had a, you know, a label on my forehead that, you know, said I was sexually abused, you know, and yeah. um, 
I think that was really the the biggest thing to overcome was just the shame around it. And and in doing that, the ability to talk about it with other people, because honestly, that's what this whole project is about. Yeah. It is about opening up conversations that need to be opened. We have to talk about this. This sits in the shadows of humankind. It's such a part of human condition. It is a common experience for females globally. I can't even imagine what it's like in some other countries. I mean, um, we just have to spend time, you know, talking about this and get it out of the shadows that it sits in. I feel like even the other day when I was at the gallery before the preview party, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I saw you and I was going to say hi to you because I wanted to make this interview happen. And you were having a conversation with a woman there and I felt like she was making a confession to you and I just didn't want to interrupt. Yes. It's been um, remarkable. Uh, the, The number of people as I walk through the gallery, I will see, I've seen women that I've known for decades who are in there who I didn't know that we had the same experience. She didn't know that, that I, you know, this shared thing that, that we have that we never talked about. We've known each other for 20 years, Yeah, you know, and that was, is really one of the most surprising outcomes of doing this is how it's changed my perspective of our community. You know, the realization that many, many women that I know have been sexually abused and we're only just now learning about it, about each other. And then random strangers who will just be, you know, I saw a woman hugging herself. She had her arms around her and she was, had her eyes closed and she was kind of had her head up where she was, it was obvious she was listening to the audio and listening to the voices. And she had just tears rolling down her face. And I, I just had to go and hold her, you know, and, and I found myself doing that again on Saturday night with the opening. I saw two women who were both just in tears. They were obviously very affected by the piece and I just walked over and I said, you look like you need a hug. And she just melted into me and mm. just cried and cried and cried. I am so grateful for that. I am just grateful that people are finding this as an outlet to be able to say that this happened to them as a way of walking through and finding some semblance of healing in it or using it as their very first outcry, mm-hmm. um, which in many cases, that's in particular in the audio, there are people who have reached out to me who have never told anyone else. And it's, you know, they're like saying those nine words is the hardest thing I've ever done. Describe the scene. You're in the gallery. There's all these panels with the bows. And the, and they're really set up in, they hang from the ceiling and they're in a maze. You really, they're set up in, in a random way that really requires you to navigate. You have to turn right or left. Which direction do I go? You know, you have to try to find a pathway and some spaces it gets tighter. And, you know, that's a feeling that you'll have as you're walking through that space. Like, how does that constriction make you feel? And, you know, this has been a part of my feeling in my mm. life, you know, and, Um, How does it feel to be able to see slightly through these panels to be able to know that there's something beyond there, but not know what it is, you know, and it forces you to move through the space. And 
at the same time, there's an audio component where uh, there's a collection of voices and they're all talking in unison. It sounds like this crowd and they're just all these words and they're, mm-hmm. they're all saying the exact same thing though. They're stating their name and their age at the time of their abuse. And the very first voice is my voice. And I state, my name is Karen. I was 10 years old. And then this this crowd happens of everyone speaking it at the same time. And then another voice will come forward as the crowd sort of goes back a little bit. And there's echoes. And, you know, I was seven years old. I was six years old. I was five years old. So it's really a beautiful audio. It's haunting mm-hmm. and terribly sad and really powerful and empowering, you know, and it was difficult to do to listen to these voices as they came in and they're still coming in. And that's, that's my, another, just, um, one thing that I, I really want to keep collecting these voices. I want people to, to have this platform where they can find us, you know, this is a safe space where they can call, you know, send, they can log on to my website. They can record their voice. They can let that go. You know, they can Mm -hmm. put it there and let it go. And it's been very cathartic for a lot of people. I've had a lot of people reach out and tell me how good it has been therapeutically for them to just to do that. Um, And as it has been for me, there is a, a true feeling of empowerment in doing this. And it's been so cathartic for me. It's been incredible. And I hope that every single person who experiences this, whether you are a survivor or not, the one thing that I hope will happen is that it will make people talk. And, you know, the fact that people are coming to me and telling me of their abuse and and someone will say, gosh, you know, so many people who were sexually abused. I'm like, you know what? So do you. They just haven't told you yet. That's what needs to happen. People need to tell their stories. And I feel really hopeful with, you know, the way that the, that things are happening right now, collectively across the United States, people are talking and they're talking about sexual abuse and we need to keep having these conversations. And, and that in itself is, is just a positive, uh, a positive thing. We just got to keep moving that that ball forward yeah absolutely well thank you so much for all your work Mm -hmm. thanks for having me thanks for listening i'm so grateful to karen for everything that she's doing and everything that she shared with me in our interview if you want to learn more about the pink bow project please visit thepinkbowproject.com and you can see more of karen's other artwork at karenhawkinsart.com And again, if you found this episode as meaningful and as important as I did, then please share it. Thanks and take care.